0: Hey everyone, it's Natalie. This week on the Murder Diaries, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with a true badass, Anna Nasset. Anna is a victim and survivor of stalking since 2011. And with that firsthand experience, she has become an international speaker on the subject, while also training people on the importance of recognizing the dangers of stalking. In our interview, Anna and I cover a ton of topics, ranging from gender based violence, romanticizing stalking, and her new book, Now I Speak, which covers everything from her stalking experience to the legal battle that led to her stalker being imprisoned. Anna is a wonderful resource in the true crime community, and I can't wait for you to hear what she has to say. Now, here it is. Thank you for joining us today, Anna. We'd love to invite you to introduce yourself and tell your story to your comfort level.
1: Thank you so much for having me here today. Uh, my name is Anna Nasset. And I'm joining you from the brave little state of Vermont. I'm thrilled to be here today to talk to you all about stalking, to talk about my book that just came out, Now I Speak, and just educate your listeners and unpack a little bit about stalking as somebody who's been a survivor of stalking since roughly 2008, 2009, but to my knowledge, since 2011. So to share with everyone a little bit about my story, I was living out in Port Townsend, Washington, which is a beautiful small town on the Olympic Peninsula. And I had the opportunity to purchase an art gallery a couple years prior, which was my dream in life. And I didn't have, you know, like a trust fund or big bank account. I just, that was my dream was to own an art gallery. So I wrote a really big business plan and got a private investor And was just so excited about the life I was creating for myself and to be able to showcase artists, all of those different things. And in 2011, I was creating a gallery window one evening for my gallery and a man I didn't know came up and introduced himself to me. I use a fake name for him, so we're going to call him Jeffrey for the sake of this conversation today. And Jeffrey said that he was an artist and that he wanted to show artwork at my gallery. None of this was out of the ordinary, but I did get like a little bit of an odd feeling and gave him my business card, thought nothing of it, whatever. Emailed me, sent me some images along with his bio. And I wasn't interested in showing his artwork. So I, you know, sent back a polite email. Thanks, but no thanks. And he would immediately then start sending me Facebook messages And we were never friends on Facebook, but it's easy enough to send somebody a message, right? And I think it's, you know, important for us to really kind of just recognize stalking as a crime and how it appears. And if we look at the Department of Justice definition of stalking, it's a repeated course of conduct that puts a reasonable person in fear for their safety, the safety of others around them, or extreme emotional distress. And so we are looking for that repeated, right? which really is only two or more events that cause a reasonable person to be scared. But what's interesting about stalking is so often it appears in normal things, like the unwanted gift, messages you don't want, surveillance, someone standing outside your business or your home, whatever that might be. And it really takes law enforcement and advocates and prosecutors to be able to find the criminal behavior in this behavior that would otherwise be considered normal. So Jeffrey's sending me these messages and my spidey sense starts to go off. And I also realized that he actually had been in my gallery before, but it was a very busy gallery. So it was pretty normal to like not pay attention to people and that he actually had submitted artwork to me the year prior, but I had ignored his email for whatever reason. It was very very unlike me, but that I did that. And I'm glad I did because it gave me like an extra year of freedom. Really? So pretty quickly, my gut sense was going off that something was wrong. And I would talk to the people around me. And for the most part, in the beginning, people were like, oh, you're overreacting. You're overreacting. This guy just has a crush on you, whatever. But I googled Jeffrey's name one day. And this court report came up or an unpublished opinion from a court case where Jeffrey had threatened to harm and or kill people at our mental health facility in the community. And so within that, I immediately knew, oh no, there's something bigger going on here. And luckily, because it was a small community, because I you know, had a place of power in my community as a business owner, I was able to contact a friend of mine who knew anybody who had caused harm in the community. And he was like, this guy's bad news. You need to go to the cops right now. Now, I think it's important for me to say that if this was a large city, If I had dated Jeffrey, if I was a different race, a different gender, if I was elderly, if I was homeless, if any of these things were different, I would like to say the results are the same, but I don't know that they would have been, right? So I think that it's important that I acknowledge my privilege in this very unfortunate situation. And, you know, no one deserves for any of this to happen, but we all deserve the right treatment if it does, is so important. So I would go to law enforcement and they knew who Jeffrey was as well. And so they really informed me that Jeffrey happened to have a mental health diagnosis. He happens to be schizophrenic. Not everybody with a mental health diagnosis or schizophrenia is going to go stalk. And in fact, most stalkers don't have that mental health diagnosis. So we talked about that, that Jeffrey was known to stalk people for short spurts of time, these various different things. And then, you know, there's nothing to really be done, but send me back out into the world. You know, I learned how to collect all my own evidence, how to create logs of anything. We talked about switching up my patterns, self-defense, not being alone, all of these things, which are really challenging when you're trying to run a business to like change up your patterns and things like that. But I did the best I could because really with crimes like stalking and domestic violence as well, so often it falls on the victim to be the investigator. Because if we don't collect that evidence, law enforcement has nothing to build a case on. So that's really important. It's something I tell the people, I'm like, collect everything, save everything, because you just don't know if you're going to need it or not. So over time, Jeffrey would continue his harassment of me. There was times he followed me. I mean, we are condensing an eight-year story into yeah. <laughs> into a podcast, so I'm I'm railing through it, folks. <laughs> but you go
0: into a lot of detail and explain everything so perfectly in your book. Now I
1: speak yes. it took me 326 pages to really tell the whole story. So, <laughs> but basically, Jeffrey would be arrested for his harassment of me, and he would serve a year in jail. From 2012 to 2013. And he would be released um, in January 2013. So during that year, I thought, okay, great. I've shown him. He's going to leave me alone. Before he was arrested, the detriment to my business was significant very, very quickly. Because the last place you want to be is where the stalker knows you are. So I wasn't able to be present to make those sales I needed. If I saw him someplace, I'd close early. And another thing I
0: was reading in your book as I was going through it was you would get these phone calls last minute saying you had to oh come down to the court right now. And so whether or not you had buyers in your gallery you had to leave and that was also a significant loss of income, you know, not being able to be there having to leave mid sale and you had said the previous December you made 50,000 or like, I don't know if that was Total profit or- Total, not profit, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and, and then you compared it to the December post-Jeffrey after he's been harassing you and stalking you and it was cut in half at $25,000. Right, yeah. I, I just felt like that was such a, a great way for a, a reader to visualize the impact of that.
1: hmm hmm And I needed that money to keep me through the slow months to come. So it wasn't like- woohoo, we're going out, we're going on vacation or anything. It was just like, I needed that to keep me going. And I think that's something that oftentimes people don't think about or realize within stalking and domestic violence as well. While my case is obviously not DV, so much of stalking is tied to domestic and interpersonal violence because most people are stalked by somebody they know, not a situation like mine. But when you get into stalking and domestic violence, These basic needs become very challenging, right? That income, the housing, even accessing food. Because once Jeffrey got out after that year in jail, one of the places he liked to be a lot was at the grocery store. So if he didn't leave, like, yes, I had a protection order, but it doesn't mean he always would obey it. You know, I'd have to get escorted out or whatever. I should have called the cops, but I was just done with the system at that moment. And I just didn't feel like doing that. And there was an added level of complexity when we were going through the court hearings that first time where it was discovered that Jeffrey thought me going to court hearings and being involved in this case was a sign of my love for him. On your clothes, like what you were wearing or something like that? Yeah, yeah. He gets into like all these nuanced things. So for me, it was really challenging to make those choices. So something even like getting groceries... I'd have to wait till like hours when the buses weren't running because he used the bus for transportation or go to the grocery store in the next town over. So all of these things that are basic needs start to become really complex. I found that over the years, choosing housing, right? If I need an apartment, I'm certainly not going to tell my landlord before I sign the lease, hey, FYI, I have this stalker who thinks we're married and wants to murder me. That's an after I sign the lease conversation because I need that legal document because who's going to rent to me, right? I just think it's so important that we understand these basic things that people are dealing with. And I don't have children, but if I did to protect them as well, all of those different things are so difficult for someone in my position. Um, And in fact, when Jeffrey got out of jail from that first time in 2013, after a couple of months, he actually did contact my landlord And there was only four units in that building and he tried to rent one. So all of these things that you're trying to do to make sure that you're safe and your community's safe. Mm -hmm. Because with Jeffrey specifically, there was that concern because I have this public business. We have a gallery walk the first Saturday of every month where hundreds of people would come through that he could do a larger act of violence. And so I would do things like, have somebody with a concealed carry permit at my gallery walk. Because if something happened to me, that's one thing, but a larger mass group of people, no. So there's so much of that protection that falls on the victim to to do for themselves and others. Can
0: you tell our listeners what happened once he was out again for the... So he was in jail for a year and then he was out continuing this stalking behavior.
1: Yeah. So he really walked a fine line because I have this protection order and he is intelligent in a lot of ways. Like he would walk that fine line of, you know, not like, maybe I'd see him on the street and like, we could both be on the street. He'd walk by, but the question was always, where would he go next? What was he capable of? And one of the things that he started to do and continues to do to this day, luckily I don't receive these, but he writes letters and so he writes these very graphic and descriptive letters and he'll send them to law enforcement. He'll send them to prosecutors, to judges, sends them to a friend of mine talking about he different and his other victims because he is a serial stalker and talking about the ways in which we should be harmed, talking about the sexual relationship he has with us, all of these different things. So it was a way to continue that behavior without being arrested. That kind of leads me into, I have a few passages
0: from your book. I just couldn't help myself. I loved it. But as someone that reads a lot, I'm always looking for like little snippets to talk about. And there's a passage on page 60 that reads, quote, with stalking, this is part of the crime. The fear that each victim faces. If they aren't here, where's the stalker? And where will they appear next? Jeffrey is the darkness. He is the shadows. He resides in the deepest crevices of my brain. I never know what he'll do next or when he'll do it. And that was eye-opening for me because I think I naively assumed that stalking really affected the person when they were physically present. I never considered, and I feel like that is part of my privilege informing that way of thinking, that it couldn't be further from the truth. No matter where they are, the offender's looming presence is felt. So their absence only terrorizes you further
1: right then. absolutely i Sorry. mean it's it's a form of gender based violence but it is a psychological crime it's a sexual psychological crime in a lot of ways and certainly in my case and i think that that is the thing is that you know he's incarcerated right now as we'll get to at the end of this and people say to me all the time like oh my gosh you're so amazing like you should be so happy you've survived this you've survived this and as somebody who has experienced gender based violence Throughout the course of my life, starting at the age of three years old, as I also write about in the book, I look at all of those other experiences that I've had of sexual assaults, of bad relationships, of molestation as a child, and I can look at those and say I survived it. But when it comes to stalking, I generally still refer to myself as a victim. And people try and correct me on it. And I'm like, first off, I get to choose what term I use. So exactly. please don't. but. Just because he's incarcerated doesn't mean it's over. At the end of the day, and this isn't for every person who's been stalked, but for me, when it's gone on for this many years, this is not over till one of us is no longer walking this earth. Yeah, because there there is no resolution. All all of your other experiences
0: have come to an end. You You deal with them in a different way than you're dealing with Jeffrey. Right. Who is actively alive and still continuing his stalking behaviors, even from behind bars. Right. Yeah. And it did make me wonder are you
1: ever afraid of saying you're in Vermont because of that? Not at this point because he figured that out. Oh. So okay. um yeah, so he did figure out where I lived and so that was kind of part of how what led us to the final trial in 2019. I'll catch listeners up a little bit um to how we get to 2019 but essentially like when he's out in 2013 like I am just terrified all the time. Because I have switching up all my routines again, like tries to rent an apartment in my unit. I'm not walking anywhere alone. My business is just like crawling around me because where do I want to be? Not there, you know, not there at all. So I ended up closing my business in 2013, which was devastating to say the least. But I continued to live in Port Townsend because I'm very connected to that community um, in fact, by the time this podcast comes out, I'm going there this week, actually. So I'm really excited to get to like reconnect with this community that's so dear to my heart. So I continued to work there. And I worked as the marketing director of a large lumber company. And I thought that was very clever
0: when you were saying it was
1: very calculated
0: in a good way in you choosing to work at a lumber company, because who's going
1: to mess with a bunch of ex-Marines... Yeah, exactly. A bunch of sailors, former military lumberjacks, like good old boys, like absolutely. And I knew them prior. I knew the owner of the, that company prior to me working there. And once again, when I took the job, do you think I told him, thank you so much for this opportunity, just a heads up. Eventually I would have to tell him when one day we saw Jeffrey's card out the end of the road of the work. And really I was terrified because I'd been very quiet in my community about this. Because with stalking, everyone's first, most people's first response is, Oh, you're overreacting, instead of starting by believing, which I'm a big supporter of the Start by Believing campaign. But so I just was quiet because I didn't want to hear people's comments or the weird questions. So when I did finally have to tell my boss about this, I was terrified. I was like, This guy is just going to be like, he's going to be mad at me. He's going to make fun of me, whatever. And instead, you know, sometimes it's the people you never expect. And he met me with like such kindness and empathy and was just like, we've got you. You're safe. You're okay here. You're part of our family. And really, really opened my eyes up to there are trusted people that are looking out for you. And that was really huge. So I'm excited to see him and give him a copy of the book soon. You talked about how stalking is considered a lesser crimes,
0: but there's like a litany of other troubles as a result of the stalking, not just someone physically following you or the threat of someone watching you, but victim blaming, like you touched on right now, isolation, which is you know a, a result of someone's loss of community, financial setbacks, revictimization. And in the book you talk about, you were very um, outgoing and a very big part of the community. You would do a lot of activities with friends, all different types of friends. And as this was happening, that outreach that you had shrunk and shrunk and shrunk until you just had a couple of friends that you were able to lean on because you weren't telling everyone about what was happening.
1: Yeah, and part of that was on I mean that's that's it's twofold because that's on me as well of just not having the language. We didn't have as much research, resources, anything like that back then. So it just felt easier to stay quiet and I wish I mean I I can never look back and say I wish I'd done it differently. But I do in some ways, right? I wish I'd been louder and more open about this instead of just kind of shrinking away and pulling back from people or, or whatever. But, you know, fundamentally, I still believe like, yeah, it was just, it was really challenging to know how to do this. Plus, because you're just feeling so mentally isolating, you're isolating yourself from people, right? Like it's easier, it's safer to stay home. It's safer yeah. to be, you know, in my in my apartment or wherever I was living, than it felt to be out in public. And so while I still had that rich community, I also, it was a twofold of me not tapping into it and people not knowing how to help me too. Cause Mm -hmm. like you tapped on it, like we put stalking down at the bottom of these crimes and gender-based violence. And we say, you know, stalking leads to homicide. It leads to domestic violence. It leads to sexual assault. Like it leads to these things. And that is true. And that is why we have to take stalking seriously, because if we do, we will save lives. And it becomes problematic when we start to give these different crimes a different scale. Like, oh, well, it's just stalking, so it's not that big of a deal. And so that's a lot of what I do is try and educate people to say, this is a big deal, because if you take it seriously, you can save a life. And I'm living proof of that.
0: And now a word from today's sponsor. I've been sleeping on Blissey pillowcases for a couple of years. I literally have 10 of them. And let me tell you, the sleep has been nothing short of blissful. That's because Blissey uses award-winning 100% mulberry silk, which is what's best for your hair and skin. It reduces frizz, tangles, and prevents breakage. It keeps the moisture in your hair and keeps your skincare products and natural moisture on your skin, while cotton literally absorbs it off your face. With Blissey silk pillowcases, you can say goodbye to wrinkles, dry, flaky, and red skin in the morning,
2: and wake up with healthier, shinier hair that won't take an hour to fix. Like Natalie said, Blissey pillowcases are made with 100% mulberry silk, which just so happens to be naturally hypoallergenic, so you can sleep more comfortably without itching or rashes. And unlike other silk pillowcases, these are some of the highest quality silk and are machine washable and durable. Not to mention it's the perfect gift for any occasion.
0: I've given them to my mom, my sister, I make my husband sleep on one. Everyone
2: I love loves Blissey just as much as I do. Plus the pillowcases come in gift-ready packaging that they'll be sure to love. Besides all the amazing benefits for skin and hair, one of the things I've enjoyed most about using Blissey is that they regulate temperature, keeping you cool at night. Seriously, the entire pillow, cool to the touch. No more sweaty nights spent tossing and turning around for me. And they're really soft too. Everybody loves Blissey and you will too. They have a ton of different prints and colors. And like we said, Blissey makes for a great gift because there's an option for literally everyone. And men love them too. They have over 1 million raving fans and you will be next. Try Blissy now risk-free for 60 nights at blissy.com slash diaries and get an additional 30% off. That's B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash diaries and use code diaries to get an additional 30% off. Your skin and hair and everyone you gifted to will thank you.
0: There's a part in the book where you talk about the first time you went and filed a police report. And then not too many days later... It's in your small town's newspaper. And you would think that even if it's considered a quote-unquote lesser crime, it's still a big enough crime where you shouldn't be outed like that. And that was really interesting to me. And I guess you ended up learning that you have to request specifically, please let this be confidential.
1: Yes, absolutely. Because otherwise, like there's the police log, right? And that same week, there was uh, another one in the paper that had to do with domestic violence situation. And it was just like, oof. Mm-hmm. And part of that is, you know, I can look back and say like Officer Corrigan, who was the officer through all of this or through a lot of this, like... Was that a pseudonym as well? Or was that actually... No, that's his name. Yeah. Oh. But what I did in the book was anybody who caused harm got their name changed. And then there was a few people that for their own personal reasons, wanted their right. name changed. But anybody who did good, their name's in there. <laughs> so the judge and every... Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah, yeah, they're all real people. They're all like, yeah, they're real names and everything like that. And yeah, it was funny. One of my friends was over here the other day and they were looking at my fridge because I have all these pictures and they just read my book. They're like, okay, let me see <laughs> if I can guess who's who. And I was like, all right, go for it. And they nailed it. Um, good for them. <laughs> I gave good descriptions. So that felt really good. But it was really interesting. My friend said to me who had read the book, they're like, everybody in this book and the places I can picture so clearly. He said, except for Jeffrey, I can never actually picture him. Oh my
0: God. Okay. That's so funny you say that because there's this juxtaposition of women forced to wear disguises for safety or out of necessity in your book, and then the men who wear these disguises out of manipulation. And hearing that no one can picture who Jeffrey is really makes it clear that whatever face he's wearing as he's manipulating isn't always true or authentic. I don't know if I'm hitting it on what you're talking about, but that's what it felt like to me. That makes sense. There's um, two quotes that I'll read and then I'll let you get back to it. But at the beginning of the book, you have a section where you're working as a waitress in Vermont. And this is already after you've encountered Jeffrey and you've left to go into hiding. And you're talking about how you have to figure out all of these stories you're telling, the different tables of patrons that you meet. But you wrote, tying the apron around my waist was more akin to putting on a disguise than a uniform. It struck me that, as I said before, women are often forced to present a certain face to the public in order to remain safe. And there's this estimate published by The Who um, that indicates about one in three women, so 33% worldwide have been subjected to either physical or sexual intimate partner violence or non-partner sexual violence in their lifetime. And it's sad that that many women have experienced that and that we've all had to adapt that way. Whereas further in the book, you write this about the men, not all men, but these specific men that have presented themselves this way. Quote, I seek out the companionship of men who wear masks, the ones who draw people in with their charisma, but reveal control, manipulation, and judgment behind the closed doors of our relationship. And I thought, wow, that is so telling to the different types of disguises and masks people wear in life and just the difference between the disguises a man wears and a woman wears.
1: Absolutely. Like I would say two follow-ups to that is that like that part where I'm talking about tying that waitress, you know, my my apron on my waist as a waitress, like I think really speaks to how... Victims of crime, victims of gender-based violence, survivors of gender-based violence are everywhere. We are your waitresses. We are your cashier. We are, you know, the, your your postbox per- worker. We are all of these people. We are everywhere. And people don't think about that, right? They're just there to have a nice meal. And like, do they not think about it or do they not want to think about it?
2: It depends Maybe upon both. the
1: person. Yeah, yeah, I think it depends upon the person. And, you know, I think it's also important that we do say like, Yes, one in three women have experienced some sort of gender-based violence in their lifetime, and one in six men have. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I work really hard to do is like, yes, all of the gender-based violence for me happened at the hands of men. And I do have like, you know, there's a lot of men who worked my case and who supported me and believed me and who are friends of mine. And follow up to that, like to that section that you just read, I think that this happens a lot for people who have experienced gender-based violence throughout the course of their lifetime is, yeah, we're attracted to people who are going to keep perpetuating that. You know, we see the same with domestic violence. We see that with these different crimes where it's like, that's so known to us, that feels normal. It takes a lot of work to break that cycle. Um, I do a lot of work with my therapist and this and that and you know, jokingly said to you earlier, I was like, well, now that I wrote this book, I don't think I'll ever be dating again (laughs) anyhow. So, (laughs) Um, But it takes a lot of work to break that cycle and realize that you are worthy and realize how many good people are out there. We just have to really like run like the hills from the ones that aren't. So, and I do like how much work has been done to really talk about red flags and green flags lately and just that's continuing to open that conversation up to somebody who's you know listening to this, who's just starting to date for the first time and is like, oh, red flags. Okay, I'm not going to continue to see that person.
0: Thank you for explaining that in a way that I can digest and our listeners can digest as well. Do you mind talking a little bit
1: about the misconceptions of stalking? I would love to talk about the misconceptions of stalking. (laughs) Where do we start? Do we start in the greeting card aisle at Valentine's Day when you see all of these cards that are like, you know, making like romanticizing stalking and...
2: Or the
0: romanticizing of stalking in rom-coms, which you also touched on in your book.
1: We see it a lot. Movies, television books. It's everywhere. And, you know, once again, to bring back to the point, cases of like mine are not the normal. The cases we're mostly seeing, like the majority are people who know the stalker, coworker, former or current intimate partner, family member, somebody they know, an acquaintance, whatever it might be. Now media portrays stories like mine, right? Because that's sensational. Like, I mean, I mean, I understand that. And they're also doing a big disservice to not educate, like, if you're gonna use my story, use it for educational reasons. Like I've said no to quite a few things because I'm like, I'm not going down that voyeuristic rabbit hole. I'm very open to sharing this on all the different platforms as long as it's really centering back around like how are we bringing awareness to stalking and not going into that like gross voyeuristic path. Mm -hmm. Where it's more about entertainment than education. Yeah. And I think, you know, I as a public speaker when I'm working with audiences, I usually do this thing. I'm like, all right, show of hands. How many of you maybe said in the last two weeks, like, oh, let's stalk him on TikTok or Instagram or you run into somebody a couple of times on campus in one day, oh, are you stalking me? Like that type of language. I know I said that stuff before I became a stalking victim, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So it's the thing of being like, okay, now we have awareness. Now, next time one of your listeners says that, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, I just made a joke out of something that's a crime. And mm-hmm. I think that even just that shift, that starts to ripple out. And it starts to ripple out to be able to say to the listener who has a friend that says that, like, oh, let's go stalk this person to be able to be like, oh my gosh, I listened to this survivor and this victim of stalking. And that's actually problematic when we do that. Mm-hmm. So I think those are things that are so important Because, and it was part of the reason I was silent for so long was because people would say things, but I was like, oh, I'm being stalked by this man. Like, oh, well, aren't you lucky that somebody likes you? Or, oh, that's flattering. I was like, "Mm, is it? Is it flattering? Because I don't find it flattering at all.
0: It's disturbing that they would even think it would be flattering. If they were in your shoes, it makes you wonder how they would (laughs) have.
1: Yeah. Yeah, like it. we have what is like the on Netflix. All the like comedy shows are called Netflix as a joke. It's like stockings. Oh. Stockings not a joke. <laughs> That's yeah. like my, a new campaign. So I think.
0: I think it is interesting growing up as a woman, you do encounter people you know, like say you date or say you don't date them, but they want to date you. They're persistent or you break up with someone and they're persistent. Or even, um, and I'm not likening this to your experience, but so my mom and I had gone to a tux and suit store to rent a, a an outfit for my brother for a school dance. And the man behind the counter was a couple years older than me. And I really thought nothing of it. I was just being nice. We talked a little bit about writing because that's what I do. And he happened to say that he had a zine that he did monthly. And I kind of thought that was the end of the conversation. But a couple of weeks later in the mail, I got a pamphlet, his zine with letters. He cut out, hand cut out all the letters to do the cover of it, he got my address from the receipt that my mom had filled out for my brother's tux or suit or whatever it was. I had never given it to him. And I think I received one or two after that, but it was very unwelcomed, very violating. But then I like never heard anything from him after that. So I just kind of you know tucked it away and never thought about it again. But as I was reading and hearing all the things you had been talking about, it really brought that up like, well, was that an instant of someone potentially stalking or
1: exhibiting those behaviors? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that this is the big thing is like 13.5 million people are stalked in this country. That's a huge number, right? But so many people don't realize it. Mm -hmm. Like you just said there, but when you look at that, that's several unwanted communications that you said were very disconcerting. It was, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's just like, what? yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, when you get something with letters cut out, I mean, you usually think of like... Never good. A
1: a ransom note. (laughs) And I also want to say, you didn't say this, but I hear this a lot. People will say to me like, well, I was stalked, but it wasn't as bad as yours. And once again, I don't think we need to qualify that hierarchy, right? Because what you felt in that moment when you received those is just as valid as what I feel. We're all just as valid in those emotions And it comes back to the crime of stalking. Like I said, it never really ends, right? Mm -hmm. Like that was just, you know, kind of a brief moment you had that. But I remember there's a woman I know who we were doing a project together. This was back in Port Townsend. And when I was working at the lumber yard and I asked her, I was like, oh, okay, well, we can connect on Facebook. And she's like, oh, I don't have it. And I was like, really, why not? Because this was like a promotional, like marketing thing for an event. So it made sense that she would have social media. She's like, oh, well, I was stalked 25 years ago by one of my brother's friends and I've never been able to have social media because it scares me that he could still find me.
0: Wow. That's 25 the last, years later. I mean, an example of the lasting impact that this type of behavior has on the victims or mm-hmm. yeah, victim, like
1: you were saying, it does it really end? Not really. No, So, it, but that really speaks to that. And I mean, to kind of tie back into like my story. So, you know, as I said, I'm working at this lumber company doing these different things and, but ultimately still my life is really challenged and compromised because of Jeffrey. I'm, you know, still not taking my walks anywhere. You know, there's times I would see him, who knows where he would go. Like if I am at, you know, out with friends at a bar, he'd walk in. There was times that we had to go back to court, all of these different things. And ultimately what would happen is in 2015, my father was diagnosed with cancer and we knew it was going to be very brief, his battle with cancer. And I'm from Ohio originally. So my boss gave me a leave of absence. I went to Ohio to help my mom and be with my dad. And during this very brief window um, where he was passing away, I was the family errand runner. And so I would go to the grocery store. And for the first time in years, I'd go to the grocery store and not be scared. And I realized like, I would go into town and park my car and walk two blocks to meet a friend for dinner, which was something I hadn't done in a long time. Or I would take a walk on my parents' trails by myself at night. And that was like not something I would do at all in Port Townsend. So through this really tragic loss of my dad was when I realized I could live in this beautiful community, but was I even living there? Because I wasn't. So I made the very challenging decision and moved here to Vermont. Uh, There's a myriad of reasons for that, uh, but moved here and just kind of tried to disappear into the shadows and do whatever I could. Uh, I was here for about six months, maybe not even that. And I was desperately missing my besties out Westie. And so I they bought me a cheap plane ticket and I went back to Port Townsend. And while I was there, Jeffrey must have seen me somewhere. And he started to message me again. And that, starting from 2016 to 2017, was it's it's very legally nuanced. So I'm not going to get into that with your listeners today. I do a better job of describing in the book. I'm like, that's a lot. Um, (laughs) But essentially, basically, like I'm sending all of my evidence to Port Townsend, but I'm here in Vermont. It does get to the point where Jeffrey says he can come to Waitsfield, Vermont to be with me. And that is indeed the town I live in. Um, How he figured that out. I mean, whatever. I had to go get a driver's license and stuff. So you can always find somebody. So he figured that out and luckily did not come here. But that would end up being like all of those messages, 2016 to 2017 is what this prosecutor would eventually prosecute on. And really just the most amazing prosecutor. He took on the impossible... And he really did something that was so significant was that for the first time, I didn't just feel like the victim in this. I felt like I was a part of my own team, like that I was on the same level as the prosecutor and the detective and my advocate, And that really shifted things for me because it started to make me feel strong and like... Like you had your power back? That I was getting it back, yeah. And I think, you know, we look at justice in a lot of different ways. And that's a whole nother conversation. But even in just feeling that like heard and supported and that I was a valuable part of my own team really started to like provide me that strength to go on because fun fact, it's not like TV where it's just an hour long. Um, You know, it wasn't until 2019 that we went to trial. And that's a long time to wait. It's a very long time to wait. And... in my book, I talk a lot about like some of the really helpful things that all of those people did for me during that time and leading up to the trial. I would end up working with an advocate here in the state of Vermont as well to prepare me for trial. And it was, you know, it was laborious. It was so intensive, like those weeks leading up to it. It was a full-time job just preparing to go to trial. And I was terrified because I was going to have to fly back out to Washington and didn't even know I was going to get on the plane. I'm like, I, I, can't, I can't even get on this plane. But I did it because of these incredible people that really surrounded me with support. And even in that, like leading up to before I flew, I made my first ever like social media post about, about this. And I did it because I know a lot of people in Port Townsend. I didn't want to run into people and people like, oh yeah, you're here, let's hang. And like, no, 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 this is not a good trip. And... I shared why, and there was such an outpouring from that old community in Port Townsend and from the community I was making here in Vermont. And that really was just another one of those reminders to like, however we choose, whatever we choose in our journey of being a victim and survivor is our personal choice. For me, that choice to become more open and vocal really allowed me to see not only was I not alone, but how supported I was. And like I said, I I really say to people like, whatever you choose to do is what you choose to do. Like I'm working on this workbook right now that should come out in the fall, hopefully, where it's really to help survivors and victims tell their story. And to tell that, even if it's just to themselves, like not everybody wants to or needs to or should go on a podcast. We have to think about our safety and all of these other things, or be a speaker or write the book, but it, our stories matter even if we're just telling it to ourselves. And for me, I found that in telling my story, I've gained you know a lot of strength. I've been able to educate people and do all of these things. And you know that trial ultimately did lead to the maximum sentence of 10 years for Jeffrey, which was at the time, not something our country had seen. And that's a testament to my prosecutor, advocate, to the judge who happened to be on the case, like all of these different things and to the support they surrounded me with to really deeply understanding the crime of stalking and to the other victims that came forward too. I mean, it was really all of us together to to get to that point. And even within that, like, let me be clear, like that took us eight years to get there. And I would find out through the course of my trial that most likely Jeffrey had been stalking me since 2008, 2009, which makes sense. You know, it's not like all of a sudden... November fourth, two thousand eleven. He's like, I'm going to start stalking her today. Like, you know, there is that unknown. There's an always unknown of when this actually started. I'm not going to go too into that today, but you know, and I saw one of your questions was like, "Is this why you speak?" And yeah, it is. It's why I'm writing. Why I wrote this book. It's why I go out and speak, and you know, educate universities and military, and work with law enforcement and advocates and prosecutors to help them understand how to work with victims of stalking and victims of all gender-based crimes. But for me, it really is a thing of like my case, that 10-year victory is the exception. And that can't be. I don't want to be the exception. I want to be the standard. Because at the end of the day, I never hired a lawyer. This is all people like with the different agencies that were just doing their work. And that's so remarkable to me, like how many good people there are out there fighting for us and to someone who is being stalked who's listening like it takes a lot of work <laughs> like you got to find the right one like you it's it's still on us unfortunately to educate in some of these situations um i do a lot of work with spark which is our stalking awareness prevention center based out of dc and they do not provide direct services but they have great resources they have police logs they have guides for law enforcement guides for advocates prosecutors like looking at workplace stalking, familial stalking, all of these different things. And I think I found at least that educating myself was powerful, right? Something's happened to me. I want to know everything about it. Absolutely. I don't blame you. Yeah. So I I always like want to highlight Spark because they're doing a tremendous, tremendous job with creating those resources. And I often tell victims who reach out to me because I don't do direct advocacy, I always send them Spark and I'm like, if you can like take this website with you to the advocacy center. And I know that your community might say it's Domestic and Sexual Violence Advocacy Center. They handle stalking as well. Take these resources in, work with an advocate. They may have to learn some stuff too. And that's unfair, but we're getting there. You're also
0: an advocate through Stand Up Resources, which you founded.
1: I wouldn't say like, I would say I'm an advocate in the sense that like, I don't do direct advocacy but okay. I would say I'm an advocate in the way that like I advocate for change. I do um public I do, do Yeah, I do some case con- consulting stuff like that. Mostly I do public speaking through my business and then I also do a little bit of trauma informed graphic design for advocacy centers, things of that nature, which That's has incredible. been really interesting. Yeah, cuz I think one of the things I think is so important for us as victims who are going in to report is that our brains are so terrified, right? So if a law enforcement, if a cop's telling me something or an advocate is telling me something, there's a real good chance I'm not gonna remember it when I leave. I always tell law enforcement advocates, I'm like, email them everything you just told them. But also if there's any handout to describe like how this system works, how the criminal justice system works, it's so important so that when our brains can compute that, we can look at that and go, okay, okay, this is how this very confusing system that I know nothing about works. Okay, how do I want to proceed? How do I want to make my choices? I love that. I feel like, I hope
0: that that eventually becomes the standard
1: because... Me too. I
0: feel like it's necessary. If I were to go into the police station right now for that, I would have the same experience you had where you have a friend with you but you both don't know what's going on and you right. just kind of have to figure out what what's happening as you go and it probably makes it even more stressful than it needs to be
1: yeah cuz and once again like let's go back to the fact that like I'm a white cisgender woman walking into a police station if I'm not a white cisgender woman if I'm anything else walking into a police station am I even going to walk into a police station cuz there's a lot of barriers and fear around that as well so really, it's I always recommend at this point to people to go to an advocacy center first, get an advocate, and then go to the police station with the advocate. I think it's a really helpful tool to have. And that's a big thing, too, is if you're somebody who does go into law enforcement, if you know a prosecutor does take the case, which there's more prosecutors taking these cases now, I'm very stoked about that. Ask the questions. Ask for these terms to be explained to you. Or write them down and look them up later. Like it's really important because I like I said earlier, like I feel like that education leads to power and empowerment. Absolutely.
0: Tell our listeners where they can buy your book and plug any social media.
1: That Absolutely. You have. All right. So um you can buy my book Now I Speak on Amazon, on Barnes and Noble, bookshop.org. You can find links to it on my Instagram, which is Anna, A-N-N-A, period, Nasset, N-A-S-S-E-T. I'm on TikTok as Anna Nasset. I just joined the threads. We'll see how much I do with that. And you can find me on Facebook at Anna Nasset as well. My website is com, where you can also purchase the book. And yeah.
0: So I just have to ask, What is your life looking like in terms of art? Are you still making it yourself? Um, Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. After I closed the gallery, I basically abandoned all art because it was really painful because I felt like art had taken me down (laughs) instead of bringing joy. And, you know, just really sat in the failure of that business too. And so I didn't do anything for a while. As the stalking continued... I found that I went more and more insular, like literally just into my apartment. And so I started to make my apartment really creative. And it's something I continue to do because, you know, that's, this is where I feel the safest. That's how I navigate. So I'm very crafty and creative and clever in those ways. But I wasn't really making art until, actually, it was about when I started writing the book. So... I started then to do macrame, like the plant hangers from like the seventies, and continued to do that and started to do like wall hangings and have now gotten into this whole series of knots that I've been doing where I like wrap cords and do these interesting knots. So it's finding its way back into my life. And I'd like it to be a bigger part of my life. I'm not sure what that looks like, but I think sometimes art is just like also setting up a place that feels comfortable and safe and filling to us and that doesn't need to take money. Like, I mean, there's all just like little bits that I found and houseplants and little things like that. And that's one way to create art, but I'm excited that I'm starting to create visual art again.
0: For anyone interested in looking or purchasing your macrame, where can they get it?
1: Um, It's on my website as well, Anna, A-N-N-A, Nassit N-A-S-S-E-T. Dot com, or you can look up standupresources.com.
0: Thank you for being here today and talking to all of us.
1: Absolutely. I really appreciate it.
2: Make sure you follow us on all of our socials at The Murder Diaries Pod. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye.
1: With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.